Hello, and welcome to the Re-Re-Read podcast, where we contemporary writers see what we can learn from classic literature. Today's topic is Dracula, specifically the unsettling setting, or how to be creepy using landscape. And I'll tell you what, this is one creepy passage. Um, Those of you who haven't read Dracula in a while may remember the ride from the inn to the Count's castle, which is conducted by the Count himself as the coachman, but we don't know that yet. We only have in the book the musings of young Jonathan Harker, who's very cheerful, enjoying his paprika-laden dinners, and is about to head off into the dusk with this coachman. At the start of his journey, what we see through Jonathan's eyes is a group of villagers crossing themselves in the inn-yard. Bram Stoker puts it this way, I shall never forget the last glimpse which I had of the inn-yard, and its crowd of picturesque figures all crossing themselves as they stood round the wide archway, with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange trees in green tubs clustered in the center of the yard. Some nice gardening there for those of us who are fans of Gardener's World. But the creepiness for me is really brought out by the rich foliage of oleander and orange trees in green tubs. And it seems to me that it's this lushness surrounding these terrified figures that are more sculptures even than people at this point. It's this sense of too bright color, too lush foliage that creates the sense that something is off. So Jonathan gets in the coach and off they go. And then we really see the lushness start to burgeon. I soon lost sight and recollection of ghostly fears in the beauty of the scene as we drove along, although had I known the language, or rather languages, which my fellow passengers were speaking, I might not have been able to throw them off so easily. So, in addition to this disorienting landscape, Jonathan is surrounded by unknown languages, which adds to the disorientation. So there's an auditory component to the disorientation as well. Before us lay a green sloping land full of forests and woods, with here and there steep hills crowned with clumps of trees or with farmhouses, the blank gable end to the road. There was everywhere a bewildering mass of fruit blossom, apple, plum, pear, cherry. Again, we're looking at a scene that would normally be very beautiful, but it's too much. It's bewildering. And as we drove by, I could see the green grass under the trees spangled with the fallen petals. In and out amongst these green hills of what they call here the middle land ran the road, losing itself as it swept around the grassy curve or what was shut out by the straggling ends of pine woods, which here and there ran down the hillsides like tongues of flame. The road was rugged, but still we seemed to fly over it with a feverish haste. So here's another contrast. The road is very rugged. You'd think you would be going slowly, but in fact, there's a feverish haste. It's very strange, very disorienting. I could not understand then what the haste meant, but the driver was evidently bent on losing no time in reaching Borgo Prund. I was told that this road is in summertime excellent, but that it had not yet been put in order after the winter snows. In this respect, it is different from the general run of roads in the Carpathians, for it is an old tradition that they are not to be kept in too good order, lest the Turks should think that they were preparing to bring in foreign troops, and so hasten the war, which was always really at loading point. 
So here Jonathan is sort of trying to justify the strangeness to himself and think about all the times we kind of talk ourselves out of being worried in worrisome situations when in fact we should be worried. Beyond the green swelling hills of the Mittelland rose mighty slopes of forest up to the lofty steeps of the Carpathians themselves. Right and left of us they towered with the afternoon sun falling full upon them and bringing out all the glorious colors of this beautiful range, deep blue and purple in the shadows of the peaks, green and brown where grass and rock mingled, and an endless perspective of jagged rock and pointed crags till these were themselves lost in the distance where the snowy peaks rose grandly. That's a description that sounds like it's straight out of Gardner's World, but not to obsess on Gardner's World, let's move on. Here and there seemed mighty rifts in the mountains, through which, as the sun began to sink, we saw now and again the white gleam of falling water. This time it's not just the color of the landscape or the volume of blossoms, but the scale. It's just too much. One of my companions touched my arm as we swept around the base of a hill and opened up the lofty snow-covered peak of a mountain which seemed, as we wound on our serpentine way, to be right before us. Look, Istan Shek, God's seat, and he crossed himself reverently. And this is another undermining of expectations. God, in this case, is going to be no help at all. If he's part of the landscape, then he's part of the evil. What's really interesting about this whole description is the contrast between expectations and reality. On one hand, we seem to be on a very pleasant country drive, looking at a beautiful landscape, and instead we just get this foreboding sense that there's just too much. It's too big, it's too colorful, it's too bright, and something is just not right. 